0: You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. pray for, and uh, who are sick, who are facing um, reports and surgery and things like that. We've also got a team in Nepal. We've got several men that are over there. They're out in the countryside. They've gone up into the mountains, I understand, today, and they're up there uh, in the villages. Uh, They preached yesterday, and now they've gone up into the villages to meet with the people there. So keep them in your prayers. I um, worked diligently on an illustration for this morning, and uh, spent time, as I always do, to open up a passage. I do that. I was just interviewed uh, two different um, two different interviews um, on Preaching Coach, which is on the internet, which pastors go to on illustrations, on how to do illustrations and why illustrations, things like that, because I get calls all the time. Can you can I use this illustration? Where'd you get this illustration? That that I get that stuff all the time. Well yesterday it was just handed to me on a platter. So because I'm gonna preach on Moses being sidelined. Now a couple of weeks ago Bryce Young was sidelined because he was hit, fell on his shoulder. And because of an injury, and because of a hurt, and because of a wound, uh, he was put on the sideline for a game. I don't know that his shoulder is completely recovered yet, but, uh, you know, he was sidelined. He had to stand on the sideline, and there's a reason for it, because he was injured, he was hurt, uh, and it was best for him not to be in the game. Yesterday, when Clemson played Syracuse, um, into the third quarter, uh, Yuanga Galele, he had fumbled once, uh, Syracuse recovered, ran it back 90 yards for a touchdown. Then he threw two interceptions, and Dabo Sweeney, who by the way, he was saved in this church, he's, he told me his personal uh, salvation story, he was saved at Valleydale when it was down the road at an FCA event and uh, gave his life to the Lord, so he, he's very well aware of this church. Uh, he pulled Yuanga out of the game and stood him on the sideline. But, you know, he just he's not in the game. His head's not in the game. His rhythm is off. He's having an off day. It's a, he's not making the plays that he should make. He's making plays he should not make. All these kind of reasons. And uh, yesterday, he just pulls him out of the game, stands him up on the sideline. Now, he doesn't tell him to go sit on the bench, but he t- stands him up there on the sideline. Puts him on the sideline because on the sideline, God can teach you some things you'll never learn in the game. Now, Moses is on the sideline. He's in Midian. He's gone out to the land of Midian, which is the area of the Sinai, and he goes out there, and he is sidelined by God. God has taken him, and he has stood him up on the sideline because on that sideline, God wants to teach Moses some things that he could not teach him any other way. Now, all of us go through this in life. You go through it at work, you go through it at school, you go through it in relationships, you go through it in the church. There are times where we actually have to walk in and pull somebody aside and say, listen, we need for you just to sit on the sideline for a little while and uh, we'll find a place and a time to put you back in the game. And generally in the church, everybody gets mad and blows up and gets angry and, storms off, and I'm going to find me another church. You know, yesterday, Uangilele, to his credit, he was on the sideline, and when they put in the second-string quarterback, he taps him on the head, and he looks at him, and he says, you're ready for this. Now, that really is the right attitude when you're put on the sideline. Now, a lot of us Or on the sideline. We're on the sideline in some kind of way, and we really chafe being on the sideline. But I want to tell you something. If we would yield to the Holy Spirit, if we would submit to God, being put on the sideline, we would discover this, that God would work with us, God would work in us, and God will work through us. That is, God will work with us. That's his presence. You watch a quarterback, if he's pulled out of a game, he stands there on the sideline, usually with the coach, because the coach is coaching him while he's standing there on the side. Don't do this. Watch. Did you just see that? Did you just see that? You've got to do this in that situation. We've got to do that in that situation. He's given him coaching. That's the presence of God with us. God working in us, that's the act of sanctification. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. God working in us and then God working through us is the ministry that God will give us, give us, that he will give to us. Now, you've got to understand something and I want you to get this and listen to me carefully. Don't ever mistake being put on the sideline with being put on the shelf. You're on the sideline for a purpose. You're on the sideline for a reason. God's going to put you back into the game, whatever it is, but only after a period of being on the sideline where he can coach you and work in you and get you prepared to work through you. Now, let me, let me tell you something. With Moses, it took 40 years. Now, I'm just going to give you an observation from my life and from ministry And what I've discovered out of the Word of God, you need to understand that when God works in your life, God ain't ever in a hurry. He's never in a hurry. He's not going to rush this stuff. God's got all the time of eternity. And His timing is not our timing. And it took Moses 40 years, it took that long probably to get enough of Moses out of Moses. Now we're going to, I talked about that last week, to get enough of Moses out of Moses that God could get some of God into Moses. A lot of the timing depends on us. How quickly we want to learn, how willing we are to say, God, just listen, Take my life. If, if you've ever studied or read the life of John Wesley, Wesley comes to a point, listen to what he does. He says, I am no longer my own but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. That is why God puts us on the sidelines. That's what God's trying to do with us when he pulls us out of the game and puts us on the sideline, and that's where Moses is, and that's what God's trying to do in his life. Now I want to show you a number of things. By the way, let me show you one more thing. It's in that it's on the sideline, it's in that wilderness where Moses is that he's going to hear the word of God. Here's an interesting thing in the Hebrew language. Um, the Hebrew for wilderness is the word midbar. He puts Moses out in the wilderness, in the midbar, so that he can hear the dubbar of Yahweh. Now that phrase occurs over and over and over again in the Old Testament. The dubbar of Yahweh is the word of God. And oftentimes, God has to get us into the mid-bar before we ever listen to the dub-bar. Now, see, if y'all were Pentecostals, y'all just fall out on the floor right now. That was good. good. It's often that you've got to be put on the sidelines because you won't listen to the calls that are coming in from the sideline while you're in the game. So he pulls you out and puts you there in the mid-bar so you'll listen to the dub-bar. Well, what's God going to teach him there? In fact, by the way, God does that often. In fact, it's fascinating to me uh, how often God does that. God does that with Jacob. He gets Jacob out into the midbar, out into the wilderness. Uh, This guy who is nothing but a charlatan and a trickster. And he is always, you know, he's a flim-flam artist, Jacob is. He gets him out in the wilderness, and what happens? God speaks to him out there. He gives him a dream about a ladder that stretches from the earth up into heaven. He sees these angels ascending and descending. He sees the glory of God, and he hears God speak to him as to how God's going to take care of him. God had to do that. God had to get him out of his own home, away from his mama and his daddy, and away from his brother so he could be in a place where he could hear God speak. He had to put him on the sideline out in the midbar, to hear the dot bar of God does the same thing with, uh, with many of the prophets. He, he, he has to get many of the prophets out of where they are into the desert out there. He had to do that with Paul. Go to the New Testament in Paul. Paul goes out to the Arabian Desert for three years to study the Old Testament Scripture because he had never read the Old Testament understanding that Christ is on every page of the Old Testament. You'll see that here. By the time we get to the end of this, and so what's God going to teach me or what's God teaching me when he puts me on the sideline? What's he teaching Moses while Moses is on the sidelines? Well, on the sidelines, you learn that disappointment often means divine appointment. We don't ever understand that. So often divine appointments come in the disguise of disappointments. You can be sure Moses is disappointed here. He begins, verse 15, he flees from Egypt. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. Now, you remember, Moses had killed an Egyptian who was beating a Hebrew. He buries him. He thinks he gets away with it. He thinks that that's going to endear him to the Hebrews. And the very next day, you talk about, you know, murder, she wrote. You talk about returning to the scene of the crime. Agatha Christie couldn't do it any better. Here's Moses. He comes back to the scene of the crime the very next day. He goes back out there where he killed that Egyptian just to see what's going on. And there are two Hebrews out there fighting. He jumps in the middle of them. And one of the Hebrews, we're told in Acts chapter 7 by Stephen, that he pushes Moses away. And he looks at him and he says to Moses, are you going to kill me like you did the Egyptian? Well, Moses says, it's everybody knows it now and the Hebrews don't love me because of it what I did I did for them but they don't seem to appreciate it you ever done that i not kill somebody but have you ever done that done something for somebody you thought they would appreciate it but they never did appreciate it well they turn on him they don't want him they're upset with him Pharaoh finds out and he flees out to Midian he's like um What's the guy's name? Dr. Richard Kimball in The Fugitive. You've got the original fugitive right here. He's running away, trying to get away from the authorities. And he goes out into the land of Midian, which is basically the Sinai Peninsula. And he's there in this area where these Midianites, by the way, let me tell you who they are. After Sarah died, Abraham married a woman by the name of Keturah. And he had six sons by her. And one of those happened to be a kid that they named Midian. So these Midianites are actually the cousins of the Hebrews. All of these descendants of Keturah are children that are related. So is Ishmael the son of Hagar. They're all related to the and they fight like families down to this day, by the way. Well, that's where he goes. He goes out there, and he collapses. He gets to a well. He finds a well in the land of Midian, and he sat down. The word sat right there. Uh, he sat down mean, literally means to, to get somewhere as if you're going to inhabit the place. It's like, this is going to be my home. In fact, it's a word. You even get the idea of getting married out of that word. You're settling into marriage, we would say. They they would say, you sat down and married. You settled down together and married. He gets to that thing. I am certain that he is exhausted. I am certain that he is thirsty. He's out in the wilderness. Literally, it's a desert out there. And uh, he gets there, he's dying for something to drink, he's exhausted from running, he's fearful that they're going to catch up with him, and that they're going to find him, and he gets there to that place, and in that place he just collapses there, around that well, and through his mind runs all of this that's been going on in his life, and he thinks of himself, no doubt, as a giant disappointment. That everything in my life now is just a disappointment. All my education, wasted. All of the years that I grew up in the palace of Pharaoh, wasted. All of my connections, all of my relations, all of the, um, all of the people that I knew, all of the power that I had, every bit of it is gone now. And I'm nothing but a colossal disappointment. When you think of yourself as disappointing somebody else, you think of yourself as a bigger disappointment than they do. And so Moses is there, and all that goes through his his mind is that here I am now, out in this wilderness, a colossal disappointment and failure, but he never understands what God is planning for him. We never do. He thinks it's disappointment. God says, no, it's divine appointment. Do you see what God has done? God has reached down and taken perhaps the most influential man of his day. He would have been, he would have been the Winston Churchill of the 20th century. He reaches down and he takes Moses and he gets him away from that pagan influence. He gets him away from the domination of Pharaoh. He gets him away from having to go up to the temple of the sun god uh, every, every day. He gets him away from having to sit and listen to the teaching of the priests of Ra. And he puts him out on the backside of the desert that when God speaks to him, he can hear. He gets him to a place where God wants to begin to pour into him. He gets him out of Egypt. Where in Egypt all he does is when he looks up, he's gazing up at the pyramids of Giza. He is looking up at the massive massive columns there throughout the whole temple of Karnak. He gets him to a place that when he looks up now, he's looking up to the temple they call, uh, the mountain they call the Mountain of God. He gets him out of a place where all he does is lead ambassadors and statesmen. He gets him out of a place where all he does is lead attendants around the palace. He gets him out of a place where he he does nothing but lead armies of Egyptian soldiers. And he puts him out in a place where he leads sheep because in leading sheep, you begin to understand how you can lead people. Boy, in the place of disappointment, we can't see anything but the negative. We can't see anything but what's bad, the flaws, the cracks. We can't see anything that's good, and yet God is working in the midst of that the entire time. In about uh, 1453, Constantinople fell to the Muslims. You go back a thousand years... And a 1,000 years earlier, about 479, you had the Battle of Adrianople, 78, 478, 479, somewhere right there, Rome begins to fall. Rome now has split into two two parts of the empire. Uh, You've got the west in Rome. You've got the east part over in Constantinople. And uh, Rome begins to fall to the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths and the the good Goshes and all of that. They're they're falling now to that. It's crumbling. And what what happens is they take all of the literature, all of the books, all of the manuscripts, script everything they can gather up all of the mathematicians all of the astronomers all of these people uh, uh, of science and medicine and they all run to the part of the empire that the uh, that the Ostrogoths and the Visigoths and all of those people have not taken and that is to Constantinople and for the next 800 to a thousand years what settles over Europe is what's called the dark ages Nobody can read, nobody can write, nobody um, nobody does math, nobody does any of these things except certain monks in certain monasteries, and they're the only ones that can do this stuff. And so for a thousand years, the West is left in darkness. No music is written, no books are written, uh, no art is ever produced of any kind. And then in uh, 1453, you've got the Muslims now who come into Constantinople. And so what they do is they gather up now all of the mathematicians and all of the astronomers and all of the men of science and medicine, and they grab all of these uh, manuscripts and all of these books and all of that stuff, the scrolls, and they run all the way back now into Italy. And in uh, 1463, you have basically the birth of what is called the Renaissance, Now they've got books, they've got education, they've got all of this instruction, they've got men now who can teach Greek and who can teach. Uh, Hebrew and they've got men who can read and they can teach you to read and all of this comes back and the very center renaissance breaks out in Italy because all these people flee constant which is modern day Istanbul they flee now into Italy and there in Italy is all the flowering of this painting and artwork and sculpture and mu- all of this is just coming the word renaissance is the french word for rebirth There is this rebirth now of the arts and science and um, education. So Florence is at the center of this. And in 1463, they hired the greatest sculptor in Italy at the time. His name is Augustino de Duccio. And Augustino de Duccio comes, and he is hired by Florence because Florence is the very center of the Renaissance, and they want something beautiful in the center of the city, in the piazza there, between the great cathedral, the Duomo, and the city hall. They want something beautiful to tell the world, we are the center of all education and art and music and all of these things. So, Augustino goes down to the great, famous Marble quarry of Carrara, where that great white marble is quarried out. And he marks out this piece of marble, 19 feet tall. And as they cut it, uh, they cut it too thin. And as they cut it out and begin to move it, it falls on its side and it cracks a piece down one side. But they still pull it into the piazza there in Florence. And Augustino comes and he says this, I can't use it. It's, it's flawed. It's a mess. It's unusable. It's wrecked. You're going to have to go back and get me another piece of marble. And the city council of Florence said, no, no, we can't do that. We've spent all our money on this, this one piece of marble for you to use and to pay you. And uh, we want you to do something with this piece of marble here. And he says, I won't do it. And he walks away. And that piece of marble lies in the piazza of Florence for 38 years. For 38 years, just a big rock in the middle of the city until the council at Florence decide we're going to hire somebody that's cheaper. uh, So let's go for somebody young. They'll work for cheap. And so at 26 years of age, this sculptor comes And they ask him, can you do anything with this piece of marble? Can you give us a piece of work out of this? And he says, I can. And they haul it back into a shop behind the cathedral. And for three years, Michelangelo, he chisels and he hammers and he polishes and he rubs this great, big piece of stone for three years he does that until he's finished with he lets no one see it he keeps it covered he keeps it locked and 49 men five days it takes them to pull that thing out and to set it up right all under canvas and then when he pulls that canvas down what is revealed there is what is considered to be the greatest piece of art in all of history the david david and he stands it up and he positions the David to look all the way down to the city of Rome, as if to say to Rome, We don't need you. We are uh, our own, in our own right, great people. We don't need Rome. That's what he was saying when he faced the David down toward Rome. Here was a young man at 26 years of age that took a piece of marble that by all tents and purposes was ruined, was no good, was useless, sat for 38 years in the elements, and he comes and he takes it, and he chisels away, and he works away, and he hammers away everything that is not David in that piece of marble. And he produces something no one ever thought was possible. What is now considered by artists to be the greatest piece of art in the world. Do you understand that's what God does with you? That he pulls you out onto the sideline and while he's got you on the sideline, he's chiseling away some of the harshness. Oh my. Some of the rudeness some of the crassness in life, some of the things that don't need to be there, some things that are hurtful when he chisels away at them and when he hammers away. But what he's trying to do is he wants to unveil to you a new you that is far better than anything you've ever imagined before. You see, you just think it's disappointment. And God says, no. No. It's not disappointment. This is a divine appointment where I can make you into what I want you to be. That's what he's doing with Moses. That's what he's doing with us. The second thing that he's going to teach Moses on that sideline is this. He's going to learn to be dependent on God rather than independent from God. Now watch this beginning in verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. Did you notice now Ruel is called the priest of Midian. His name Ruel means what? Does anybody know? Means friend of God. Anybody else know who else in the Old Testament was called friend of God? Abraham. Abraham. Do you suppose when Moses gets there and these girls say, hey, this is our daddy. His name is Ruel. His name is friend of God. Do you think that's going to trigger anything in the mind of Moses? I guarantee you it does. He's going to think, well, that's Abraham. Abraham was called the friend of God. Well, he gets there and... uh, here, here the priest of Midian, he has these seven. They come and they draw water. They fill the trough to the water, their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. Now I'm going to come back to this. Moses stood up and helped them and warded their flock. And when they came to Ruel, their father, he said, why have you come back so early? Why are you back early today? You know what happened? You don't normally, you're not here normally at this time. And they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And I'm going to stop right there. Because that just ought to scream at you. An Egyptian, they come back, these seven daughters of the priest of Midian come back and they tell their father that an Egyptian saved them, delivered them. Now, what was the one thing Moses was trying to do? Get away from being an Egyptian. He, he, he had decided in his own life, I'm no longer going to be the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I, I, am, I am no longer going to identify with the Egyptians. I'm going to leave that life and I'm going to my own people who are the Hebrews and I'm going to identify, this is all in Hebrews chapter 11, I'm going to identify with the suffering of my own people. I'm going to leave everything that I've known. I'm going to get away from everything that has been mine. And by the way, let me tell you something. He had no need of anything for those first 40 years. He was a man that had wealth. He had beauty. He had education. He had attendance. He had people to wait on him hand and foot. And now he gets out there in the middle of this desert and he discovers, I really do have some needs. You know, I was was reading something. This thing just popped in my head this morning. Uh, thinking about Moses. Moses losing everything or walking away from everything. Now he has to run away from it all. He's lost it all. Talking about the disappointment, I read, uh, I was reading a book on, on Charles, Prince of Wales, who now has gone from Charles, Prince of Wales to, he's Charles III, King of England and all of its territories. And um, I, I was reading, and in there they were talking about how he is attended. Do you know he never even puts toothpaste on his own toothbrush? That's done for him. Now, you know what I'd say? I'd say, you keep your hands off my toothbrush. I don't want your hands on anything I'm about to put in my mouth. I'll put my own toothpaste. But that's the kind of life he lived, or he lives. That's the kind of life Moses lived. That was all he and he never thought he had a need. You know, some of us have such a life that we never really think we have any real needs until God puts us on the sideline and we discover, you know what? I've got some real needs in my life. What I thought I had really did not satisfy life. So he's there on this sideline. And while he's there, he's learning all of this that I've got to be dependent on somebody. I've been so independent all of my life. And he comes out of there. And these girls say, this is an Egyptian who has done this. And here's Moses, and he's doing everything he can not to look like an Egyptian. Why do they call him an Egyptian? Because he still walks like an Egyptian, talks like an Egyptian, dresses like an Egyptian. I imagine he even fought like an Egyptian, he had an accent like an Egyptian god 's got him on the sideline to get the Egyptian out of him. He wants that, Lord. how many times do we walk into church and say, "Oh God, what I want is I want you and me and all this other stuff out, and yet it never happens. God has to put us on the sideline, and so God gets him there. Listen, let me tell you, you remember the four parables or, or the four the parable of the four souls. And we think we've often looked at this as four different people. Uh, Ray Stedman, great preacher, great commentator, wrote, he said this. He said, I don't think that it's four different people. He says, I think it's four different stages or four different dispositions of one man's heart. There is the stage where it's hard as concrete. You throw the seed on it. Matthew says the birds come and they pick it, take it away. Mark says that the devil comes and takes it away uh, because the heart is hard. It never penetrates. I, I can preach like this for hours and there'll be some that sit and listen and they get absolutely nothing out of it. And then there are those that are rocky. The heart becomes rocky at times. It goes from being hard to being rocky. And at at times that seed falls in among the rock and it never gets root. And it just, something springs up, but it just withers. It dies quickly because it has no root system. Then it falls into ground where there are thorns, where there are weeds, And all of the thorns and the weeds, whatever comes up, is choked out quickly. The weeds just overcome it. The schedule just overcomes it. The appointments just overcome it. The everyday life just overcomes it. It chokes the life out of the Word. But then you come to a time that there are moments in your life where your heart is tender and it's plowed up and it's hungry and it's waiting for that Word and the seed falls on it and the roots go down and they get a firm nutritional hold on the ground and what comes up bears fruit. Now that's us. How many times do we walk in here and our heart is just in a hard state and we get absolutely nothing or other times it's rocky and it just never gets much of any kind of life or the things of this life we sit here and we think and we think of all the things I've got to do. You know, that's the difference between somebody that sits here and they're fed and they go out and they see you can see an emotion on their face and somebody that's constantly doing this right here. How long? How long? How long? How long? Nothing. That's the mystery of preaching to me. I don't understand it. How the word can come and fall on the same congregation. And there are some that are moved deeply in their lives, and others, it's just, we just do this out of, I'm just here, and I just sit up here and I'm like this. You know, when's it all gonna be over? You know, that's why we spend a lot of time on the sideline. That's a reason right there why we spend a lot of time. On the sideline, Moses spends 40 years on the sideline because he's learning to stop being so independent. Be dependent on God. Let me give you the last thing. And the last thing is this, that you learn on the sideline, that he learned on the sideline, and that is God wants to separate you from something to something. He wants to separate you from something to something. God puts us on that sideline because there's some things that he won't, wants deeply to get out of us. Now, here's Moses. Now, watch this because it's kind of fascinating. You come to this verse, verse 17, and Moses, when he gets there to this well... I think he's exhausted, struggling with the disappointment of his own life, thirsty. I'm sure he's hungry. I'm sure he's nervous. He's worried. And yet he's going to come face to face now with another injustice. He goes from one injustice in chapter 2 to another injustice. It was injustice for for that Egyptian to be beating that Hebrew. And so he kills the guy. And now he comes to another injustice with these seven daughters of Ruel. That is, they're being abused by men. So what's going to happen here? What's God doing? God's got two things. He's, he's got one thing he wants to get out of his life. He's trying to save him from something. He's getting him away from, from one something. And he's trying to get him to two somethings over here. What's the one something? Pride. Pride. This was the prince of Egypt. It's a lot of pride that goes with position, that goes with a title, that goes with a name. A lot of pride that goes with an education like he had. A lot of pride that goes with the wealth that he had. God's trying to empty Moses of his pride And now he's going to start immediately when he gets him on the sideline. He gets him on the sideline, and the first thing that he wants to save him to or get him to is going to be humility. Now, just watch this. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up. Now, I'm going to do a little bit of word study here. And this comes from the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And uh, it starts in about, they start translating the Hebrew into Greek about three, the third century AD for the next three centuries about to one um, BC. And uh, sometimes the New Testament will quote the Septuagint. Sometimes it will quote the actual Hebrew Old Testament. Paul does that from time. He'll move between the two for whatever. Paul, of course, knew Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, Latin, Swahili. I don't know. He, he knew about five languages. And so here, 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 here he is in this, this language. In the Greek, the word there is anastasis. And you say, well, now what's so important about that? And Moses stood up. Anastasis in the Greek New Testament is the word for Resurrection. You think, do you think the Holy Spirit's trying to say anything here? Anastasis here. Anahistami is the word. Ana is the prefix. histomy is to stand. Ana again, to stand again. Here he is. He's going to stand up. He's going to resurrect up. And look at this. He's going to help them, but that's not really the Hebrew word. In the Greek, in the Septuagint, it's ruomai, and the word ruomai means deliver. The Hebrew means deliver. Moses resurrected up and delivered them from these men. Do you think, do do you see anything about Jesus here? That he's going to come. And in the midst of the abuse of sin and the abuse of this world, our Christ is resurrected and he comes to deliver us. What is Moses going to say over in Numbers? He's going to tell all of Israel there will come a day when God will raise up one like me to deliver you. He saw the Messiah's coming. And he said, God's going to raise up somebody. He's going to be a deliverer like I've delivered you. He's going to deliver you in a far greater way. Now watch this. That's what he does there. By the way, this begins to pour into him that humility. When you begin to live not for yourself but for someone else, you begin to see humility in life. Who do we normally want delivered? Me. Me. And what's he going to do? He's exhausted. He's running. He's afraid of what's going to happen to him. He's out there by this well. He has nowhere else to go. He thinks he's reached the end of his rope, and there's nothing else to do. And what does he do? He stands up, and he delivers these seven girls, these seven sisters. It's not just humility, but now look at this. It's servanthood. Now, let me tell you, they say, and watered, Their flock, or it's said of him that he watered their flock. And so when they get to their dad and he says, Why have you come back? He says, Well, listen, because this guy drew the water for us and watered the flock. That's down in verse 19. Now, you read that and you don't think anything about that. But let me tell you something. In that culture, in that day, they were not like those of us that are in America in this day and time. There were only two genders at that time there was a male and a female. They didn't have 54 genders at the time. They just had men and women. That's all they had. And by the way, let me tell you, that's all you got now. They got men and they got women. And let me tell you, beyond that, they had very stringent rules of what they could do in their gender. There were things that women did because they were a woman, and there were things that men did because they were men. And one of the things that a man never did was he never drew water. You got that all the way up through the New Testament. Now, I'm not talking about is this right or wrong. I'm not saying that. Just listen to what happened here. Men would never do. It stood out. Do you remember when Jesus tells his disciples, go look for a man carrying water? He didn't say, go look for the guy that's got on a red uniform uh, down there. He said, go look. He would stand out because men did not carry water, even in Jesus' day. And so what this did, what this man did, what Moses did here, was not just come to the aid of women who were being abused, but he went beyond that. He did what was unexpected of him. He became a servant to them shades of Jesus here he's not only my deliverer but what did he say he said I came not only I did not come to be served but I came to serve and what God is doing on the sideline in Moses's life is that he's doing everything he can do to drive the pride of his life out and to put the humility and the servanthood into his life. That's what God wants to do with us on the sideline. Now, let me go back to my opening illustration. Let me go back to you, Angelile on the sideline yesterday. At the end of the game, y'all don't mind, I know this is terrible in the state of Alabama to use a Clemson illustration, but it happened. It happened. At the end of the game, they interviewed Dabo. Now, he's one of y'all, us, down here in Alabama. He's from this area. Well, Dabo was asked, of course, about the game, and then they asked him about Yuanga Lele. Well, what's going to happen to him? Is this it for Yuanga Lele? Is he done? Is he finished? Uh, you're going to use your second-string quarterback now. Is he going to become first-string quarterback? Uh, at Clemson at, at Clemson for the rest of the season and Dabo Dabo starts and said no 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 he says DJ is our guy he's our guy he's our man he's he's the quarter he's our leader he's the leader of the team he'll be in next week he's just on the sideline folks for half of the third quarter and all of the fourth quarter but he's going to be back next Saturday no because they got to buy Saturday after next, he'll be back. Listen, I tell you that to say this. When God puts you on the sideline, don't ever mistake that, that God has put you on the shelf. Let's stand and pray about it. Some of you feel like you're sidelined in life. That you don't have a place like like Mo- Moses felt completely out of place. These seven sisters leave him there at the well. After what he did for them, they leave him. He must have thought, I thought surely they would have offered some hospitality. They would have opened their home, their table to me, at least for a meal. He had no idea what all God was doing and how God was preparing to take one of those girls and make her his wife. God's got you on the sideline and you feel like I'm just deserted. I'm left. I'm a disappointment to myself. I'm a disappointment to others. No, no. Don't think that. God's got you in a place where you can begin to hear Him. Listen to Him. Yield to Him. Be submissive to what He's saying to you. Get His Word. Listen to His play calls and not to everybody else's. And in doing that, you discover God's preparing you for something. Let me tell you, every single one of you here that names the name of Jesus Christ, God has got something for you. Most of you are in a place of preparation right now. Some of you were in a place and now God's moved you to another place and to the sideline and you think, well, I've lost it all. It's all gone now. No, God's not through with you. When God gets through with you, we'll all know it because we'll gather here and we'll preach a funeral. But as long as you're alive, God's got something for you. Some of you here this morning, you you can't hear that coaching from Jesus because you've never submitted your life to him. You've never put your trust and your faith in him. And right now, you know you need a word from God. Well, it will not come until you come and humble yourself before Him as Lord and Savior and receive Jesus Christ. What you need to do in this moment is just simply pray Lord Jesus, I come and confess I'm in a bad situation, I'm a sinner, and I'm struggling. And it's not possible for me to save myself, but I come to you and I stand by you and I throw myself on you. I'm casting my life into your hands, trusting that you're the God who will love me and forgive me and receive me and extend to me mercy and grace. And let me tell you, He will. If you do that right now, He will. And if you're praying that right now, I want to know. I want you to come and I want you to share it with me. I want to pray with you and for you and encourage you, but I cannot pray that for you. That's something you must do. Others of you here, listen, God may be calling you to ministry. That's exactly what he was doing with Moses. Moses never would submit for 40 years. Don't wait that long. If God's calling you to ministry, surrender to it. Let him know that you're willing to follow him and to do whatever he's calling you to do. Others of you need to put your life in the life of this congregation. And you can do that by stepping out and coming and taking my hand and tell me that you want to be a part of this fellowship. Listen, we don't want you to be ashamed of the church. We want you to be willing to step out and say, hey, I'm a member at Valleydale. So in just a moment, I'm going to be standing here after I pray and I want you to come and just share that with me whatever decision God's laying on your heart, Father you're speaking to our hearts this morning, what an incredible passage of scripture so many of us so much of the time feel like we're sidelined and we feel so much disappointment in our lives and about our life and Lord we never realize it's a divine appointment we never see that That you're working you've not left a single one of us in this room alone but you're working and I thank God for that and I pray that in this moment we'd respond to your invitation to come to you and I pray it in Jesus name you come right now Kirkwood leads us in these moments where heads are bowed this congregation is praying You come as God speaks. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.